Marvelites, you're listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 419. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I am human woman, Lorraine Sink, arbiter of arguments and fun times. I don't know. I'm just really working on it. Yeah, it was good. I, I, I felt like there was, there was something you were doing there. Lots to talk about this week. Uh, we always start with the tippity-toppest things. And holy butts! Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. There is going to be a sequel on the way. They tweeted it out just a couple days ago. Very exciting. We saw the little Miles Morales insignia flashing, bopping around, being happy. So I'm happy too. I just can't wait. I know. Oh my gosh. I watched the first Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse film this past weekend with my daughter basically sleeping on my chest the whole time. And I'm counting it as her first movie. That's so nice. I know. It was great. Uh, That is huge news. There's lots more that we're going to talk about in a bit. But this is also our eighth anniversary episode. That's right. Ryan and I have been married for eight years now. What a tumultuous time it's been. (laughs) (laughs) But also this week in Marvel Unrelated is having its eighth anniversary. Mm -hmm. And we want you guys to be a part of it. And you are a part of it. We've got a whole bunch of um, audio bits that we got from some of our amazing listeners that we're going to play later on in the episode pretty great uh we really appreciate you guys being a part of our celebration um it's been a wild eight years big thanks of course to ben morse who was the original co-host and the funny thing is i came in being like what's a comic book not really but like ben had all the knowledge in his head and i was a crazy encyclopedia man yeah i was able to just skirt by and be like come in guns a blazing and he would have all the facts and then it had to flip around when he left. I was like, I have to know all the things. But that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and now you both have daughters. Yeah. Think about that. Wow. What when a you, world. When you guys were just like unmarried guys living your lives and now you're dads. Yep. So nice. Uh, also, big thanks to all the people who have been on the show. It's just been a wild ride, eight years, and onward we go. So much cool stuff, uh, including our interview for this week which is with Larry Hama, who was a longtime Marvel Comics editor and writer and artist, and his story is fascinating. He tells some really cool tales about working at Marvel and even before Marvel uh, in his days leading up and how he got the gig. And, you know, we, we sort of timed this thanks to Marika on our editorial team here at Marvel.com. She wanted to do a piece with Larry about Veterans Day because he's, he's a, a Viet- vet. Yeah, he's a Vietnam vet. And so we thought, what better way than to also have him come in here and then um lorraine you and persia figured out like why don't we talk about some military and war comics and stuff because larry had a he edited the nom comics which are really great really intense but like really cool if you've never read them definitely worth a a read absolutely um but there's even more in this episode because you know we like to do it right and it's our anniversary baby yeah so i think we should talk about things we're hyped about this week comma including news colon yeah that's right uh in case you missed our bonus episode from this week we released a new trailer for marvel's the new marvel fiction podcast series from marvel new media and stitcher how many times can i say marvel in one sentence the 10 episode series will air weekly beginning november 20th 2019 exclusively on stitcher premium and then it'll have a wide release across all podcast platforms in 2020 yeah i'm super excited to listen to it uh this of course is connected to the original Marvel's title, which told everything from the more human perspective of superhero happenings. And we have Method Man, 
uh, as a central role in the show. So cannot wait. Yep. All right, Ryan, you also got to experience Marvel Studios Avengers Damage Control at the Void VR in New York, uh, along with my pal Todd Nock, amazing Marvel artist. Uh, tell me everything. How was it? What was it like? Oh, my gosh. It's so cool. Uh, the Void is this really cool VR experience, but it's a, a, a large area that has obstacles and, and actual physical things and paths and all this other stuff. But you are wearing a a vest that is has like haptic feedback and sensors and all this other stuff. You're wearing uh, a headset that has VR goggles and earphones and you get completely immersed into whatever you're doing. The idea here is that Shuri has taken bits of Iron Man tech and bits of Wakanda tech, smashed them together, and she needs your help to test them out. And then, oh no, big problems arise while you are testing out her new gear. So you're actually with this like Wakandan Iron Man hybrid suit of armor where you can shoot repulsor blasts or pull up shields and you have to go and do stuff alongside the Avengers. So you actually go to the Sanctum Sanctorum, you see Doctor Strange, um, you see Ant-Man and the Wasp, there's a giant battle. There's a Easter egg at the end, which I didn't see, but Todd saw, and I can't spoil it, but there's something. So keep is, an eye out if you get to the end. Yeah, it's up and to the right during a big scene. I will just say that. Um, definitely check it out if you have a Void VR anywhere near you uh, in New York City. It's at the Oculus in Anaheim. It's in downtown Disney. There are a bunch more. Highly, highly suggest you check it out. Ooh, this was also really fun. I saw this unfurling uh, just the other day. Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan revealed via Instagram that Marvel Studios' The Falcon and the Winter Soldier began production. It's so exciting, and they're so fresh. They're just hanging out, being friends. Also, I noticed some of the strategic things blurred out, which I'm thrilled to find out what that means. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, but what's not a secret anymore is that Marvel Studios Avengers Endgame will now be streaming on Disney Plus starting November 12th when the service launches. That is next week, you guys. That's bonkers. I know. Also, like the amount of Marvel animation that's going to be available to you guys. Also, the classic Disney film Fuzz Bucket, which will haunt you and or make you fall in love or a little bit of both. Just Google it. All right. This week in Marvel history. Let's talk about it. All right. So uh, we are digging through all 80 years of Marvel history. This week, we're looking at November 8th through the 14th. We missed a big one last week. Yeah, we did. Steve Ditko's birthday. He was born on November 2nd, 1927. Uh, Steve Ditko passed away in 2018 at the age of 90. Uh, He was a founding father of the Marvel Universe, capital M, capital U. Ditko helped create Spider-Man and, you know, much of his early canon as well as Doctor Strange and so much more. And as you keep listening through the end of Marvel history, and even we have a mention of him in our interview with Larry Hama, uh, his legacy as a Marvel creator extends into the 80s and 90s. All right, let's get into November 12th of 1963. Sparks fly when classic Spidey villain Electro, a.k.a. Max Dillon, makes his first appearance in The Amazing Spider-Man number 9 by Stan Lee and, you guessed it, Steve Ditko. His costume, one of the coolest and most iconic Marvel villain costumes. It is truly electrifying. And then November 14th, 1978, Mariko Yoshida debuts in Uncanny X-Men number 118 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. The X-Men find themselves in Japan. They have to deal with Sunfire and then the Mandroids, which, great name. And even uh, with Moses Magnum, also great name. But the quiet scene between Logan and Mariko is the start of their romance. (gasps) Mm, It's it's good. so good. It's the gem here. He's like 
gruff and he's like gruff. he's like huffing around he's like i need some place to be quiet and she's just meditating in a garden and he comes in he's like whoa and he's like his thought bubble was like oh my god she's beautiful he's like my breath it's, is taken away like that's not exact but this is essentially it's what the happens. feel <sighs> also the art in those books is Mwah, chef's kiss so good all right another chef's kiss coming at you november 13th 1979 jennifer walters makes her first appearance as she hulk in savage she hulk number one by stanley john Buscema and Chick Stone. A criminal lawyer in Los Angeles, Jennifer Walters, meets up with her cousin Bruce Banner. They're just trying to have fun and like live his life. He's, on, of course, on the run from being Mr. Hulk. And after revealing his gamma secret to Jen, she vows to help him. Unfortunately, they're attacked while driving by gangsters. Um, her father's also a cop and like her mother died under suspicious circumstances. So there's like a whole bunch of backstory tied up into that. But she gets shot. Bruce Banner, the only guy there who's like a blood match. So he does what you got to do. He gives her a blood transfusion and a heaping dose of gamma radiation. Um, Then cue the next few issues where it's her like trying to live her life. But then every time she gets mildly annoyed, just hulking the F out, which is so fun. Yeah. Um, November 11th, 1980, Captain America decapitates Baron Blood with his shield. (laughs) Decapitated Uh, America. (laughs) Oh, my God. We broke Lorraine so quickly. (laughs) This is Captain America number 254 by Roger Stern and John Byrne. While Baron Blood is killed this issue um, in haunting and memorable panels, it's like I can close my eyes and see these panels. Uh, His archenemy and brother, the original Union Jack, also dies in this issue. This is one of the most like intense deaths uh, in But it's comics. also kind of like fitting for Baron Blood, who's like, it like makes sense because Baron Blood to me is like horror comics, more or less. Yeah. November 10th, 1981, Corsair reveals to be Cyclops' bump, bump, bump. Father in Uncanny X-Men number 154 by Chris Claremont, uh, Dave Cockrum, and the crew. Uh, Scott doesn't take the news very well. And why would you? You don't want a sassy space pirate to be your dad who just, like, abandoned you and your brother with their superpowers. He's so petulant, too. He's like... Oh, he's such a, like, you're not my real dad. He's just like... Like, shooting his his optic blast around. You you weren't there for me, laser tears. (laughs) Uh, more X-Men goodness in November 9th, 1982. Uh, it's a classic X-Men versus Brood <gasps> epic in yeah. Uncanny 166 by Chris Claremont and Paul Smith. Uh, we get some really cool Carol Danvers binary action, but most importantly, why Lorraine is super duper excited, it's the first appearance of the Dragon Lockheed. He meets Kitty Pride while frying some Sleezoids, which we don't say Sleezoid enough. A Sleezoid is Wolverine's name for the Brood Warriors, for any sort of Brood creature. Uh, and it kicks off a lifelong friendship between Kitty and Lockheed. November 12th, 1985, uh, Loki turns Thor into a frog, creating the first appearance of the best character potentially ever, Throg, in Thor number 364 by Walter Simonson. Uh, Froggy Thor finds himself caught up in a war between frogs and rats. It's pretty epic, fun, and it's a wild story. And he's like sad in the rain. Uh, Remember? Him it's- going around and like like dodging cars and then he's in the he he is in the park and he's hanging out with the other frogs and they have cool frog names and the rats are like and then at the end there's a guy with a with a whistle who Oh yeah like uh, pie, he's, he's like, like Pie Piper's the rats away or whatever. Yeah, and he's got a bunch of gators. It's 
It's wild. It's great. Ooh, I'm so glad I get to do this one. November 12th, 1991, Squirrel Girl. Yeah, she debuts in spectacular fashion in a story from Marvel Superheroes number eight, a massive 80-page winter special. She's brought to life by Steve Ditko and Will Murray in a delightful story. She uses her powers of squirrel and powers of girl to take down Marvel's greatest villain, Doctor Doom, because what does Squirrel Girl do? Crushes. Even to the point where the squirrels tear off... And they steal his cloak and they kick him out of his own aircraft. And he's like really, truly humiliated. It's so good. He's like, I just got beat up by a teenage girl. Well, I'm Dr. Doom. And she's like, yeah. And she says, I don't need luck. I eat nuts. That, that's Heck, her her yes. last like lines in the book. And it's so good. I honestly just love that she's ultimately trying to be like, hey, Iron Man, I could be your sidekick. You should choose me. And then she's like, what did I just do? I freaking crushed Dr. Doom. And then he's like, no thanks, little girl, which is probably honestly a great call to like not take a minor as your word. He does say, go to college. Right. Like, like grow up, go to college, and then we'll talk about you being on the Avengers. Also, this is in the day when she had the weird clown makeup. The clown makeup and yeah, the, it was a whole thing. But I love it. Yeah. Um, November 8th, 2013, Marvel Studios' Thor The Dark World film debuts in theaters, giving us the line, Mew Mew. Mew Mew. Uh, last but not least, November 12th, 2014, Ian Zola, a.k.a. Ian Rogers, the biological son of Arnim Zola and who was raised by Steve Rogers and Sharon Carter, becomes Nomad in all-new Captain America number 1 by Rick Remender and Stuart Eminen. It's also the first full issue featuring Sam Wilson as Captain America after he was given the mantle and shield by Steve Rogers. Uh, but those were our bits of This Week in Marvel History. There's even more you can find on the website and links to read all these comics. Uh, but we got to talk about top books from this week's episode of Marvel's Pull List. Ryan, tell me, what did you guys pick this week? We picked Black Cat number six, X-Force number one, New Mutants number one, and Yandu number one. That's a butt-ton of number ones. It was a good week. Yeah. You guys should subscribe to Marvel's Pull List wherever you get your podcasts, and that includes Pandora, you jerks, and watch video versions on Marvel.com. Just kidding, you're not jerks. I was just speaking like Kitty Pride to Charles Xavier. Yeah. Uh, all right. We got to go to our interview now with Larry Hama. Uh, before we get there, though, we're going to do a little bit of a chat about some military comics and things that we have because there's a, we have a huge history of doing war comics and military books uh, throughout all the Marvel um, eras, whether it's Timely or Atlas, Marvel, Silver Age, Bronze Age, what have you. Uh, and it's important because Larry Hama, he is um, a writer, artist, editor, and everything. and worked on the NOM. Also, we should mention Larry Hama is himself a vet. That's why our wonderful co-worker Marika brought him in, in part to talk about Veterans Day uh, and what he's done. But I think that his experience really shines through with the gravity and the thought that he puts into the war books that he's been a part of. Yeah. And, you know, the NOM, what I always found interesting when reading the NOM is it's told in real time. So if you are reading the January issue, the next issue is February. It came out monthly. And so you would follow what happened to these characters. You'd have to wait a month of their lives you know, the NOM being the most popular, that ran uh, a, a good long time. The first issue of the NOM came out September 9th, 1986. It ran for 84 issues, which is a heck of a long time. But when we were putting this together, I, I started to do a, you know, a little bit digging into our classic war titles. Even the Captain America comics and a lot of the original superhero stuff that got quickly steeped into the war at the time, you know, World War II. So a lot of those heroes got involved in that. 
Uh, yeah. And I mean, even Captain America was really born out of this idea. Both Jack Kirby and Joe Simon were men who served or were involved with the army. Uh, a lot of the men making comics at that time were in World War II at some point. There wasn't really anybody also who lived in America that life wasn't touched by the war. So you see it woven throughout our comics. I mean, even if you look at our kind of classic villains, you still see these touches of World War II. Yeah. And then at that point, you start to get into the Korean War. And mm-hmm. so I was looking through our history, trying to pinpoint what I think is the first uh, Marvel War title. And that is War Comics number 1, September 1950. It runs for 49 issues until June of 1957. Stan, of course, was the editor at the time. So he, as a veteran as well, he was a part of this book. And so with that book as our first, we just go on. Battle number 1 uh, comes out. Two months later, in November 1950, that runs 70 issues uh, into 1960. Also, Combat Kelly, uh, who's like the first person that always comes to my mind when I think of 50s war comics. Combat Kelly, number one, uh, kicked off in July of 1951. It ran for 44 issues until May of 1957. There were lots of stories drawn by Dave Berg, famed cartoonist known for his work mostly on Mad. Um, Also... For some reason, Combat Kelly really, really reminds me of Sergeant Fury. Mm. And I always feel like is the precursor, at least in my mind, of like howling commandos and those kinds of stories to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's cool. And like I love, you know, in looking at all of our early history, how titles kept numbering but changed names, mm-hmm. changed entire like ideas and aspect. You go from a superhero to a cartoon funny book to a a romance book to a war title, all in the same numbering. A simple one was Young Men on the Battlefield. That was issues 30 through 20. At first, it was cowboy romances, of course. (laughs) Then it became Young Men, then Young Men on the Battlefield, and then Young Men again. Um, Those types of things I always love. Uh, Of course, we go on into the Silver Age and we get more into the Marvel Age of things. Um, But Sergeant Fury, as you've already mentioned, was the title mm-hmm. about, you know, Fury in World War II with the Howling Commandos. Those are like an interesting mix of the super spy, getting to that like super spy mm-hmm. aspect, but really like actual war stories featuring these very colorful Howling Commandos. Well, and it's interesting, once you pull Sergeant Fury into the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it's kind of an interesting take if you really think about it, because Fury was initially introduced almost as a fish out of water story. He's like, I'm a military guy. I'm like straightforward, shooting from the hip, tough guy. And then they're like, there's a whole world of spies that you don't know about. And holy crap, now you're in the middle of it. It's interesting because I think we think of Fury as that guy, the guy with all the secrets, you know, but really he was this war guy. And that's if you think about how he is, he's always that straightforward, militaristic dude. And that's why he works so well with the Avengers and all of those other people is because of this background. Yeah, for sure. Comics, they're fun. Comics are fun. And so is our chat with Larry Hama. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back in a second. Larry, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. Uh, Very thankful that you could come in today and, and chat with us a little bit. Um, so yeah, we're you know we're celebrating Marvel's 80th anniversary this year, and so I, uh, you know, we'll get into it a little bit later. But your know, Wolverine stuff, GI Joe, very uh, stuff that helped me really get into those characters and comics. But I want to start by asking, what was your Marvel origin story? In the sense of, were you a fan before you got into working in comics? You know, when I was a little kid, 
I was a re- I was really into um, Carl Barks, you know, the uh, Uncle Scrooge comics. Uncle Scrooge and the and the uh, the Dell uh, Disney stuff and, and all that stuff was, I just loved it. But the Bark, I didn't know who Barks was, but I knew I liked. There was one duck artist that I thought was the good, <laughs> the good duck guy, and I could tell even at that age, you know, that some of the product was better than the others. Yeah, <laughs> and like far and away at that point too. Yeah, and then you know, uh, I, I went from there to like uh, reading superhero stuff, but mostly Superman and Batman, mm-hmm. and then Marvel came down the line, you know, in the, in the '60s. Well, before that, I had been reading Marvel weird stuff, you know, the the Ditko horror stuff, and you know, his like and, opening splash pages on those stories yeah. during the the '50s and '60s. Just incredible, incredible. Some of it was the stuff of nightmares, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, I I love the Ditko stuff and the and the and the early Kirby, you know. Whereas DC seemed almost pedantic in some ways, you know. Marvel seemed like they were talking directly to me, you know, rather than preaching. Or yeah, anything. yeah. I, I like that difference. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that that has set us apart for so long. All right, you, you're reading comics and stories. You're understanding creators. What actually inspires you to start going into this field of creating these types of stories? Or how did you even get started working in the broader field of comics? Totally by accident. Um, I, I went to the High School of Art and Design in uh, Manhattan, which, well, geez, so just Half the people in the business went to that school. <laughs> you know? I mean, Neil Adams, Dick Giordano, Alex Toth, uh, Michael Davis, Dennis Cowan, Joe Jusco, you know, over 50, 60, you know, very famous comic professionals came out of that school. Yeah. You know, and um, I had wanted to be a fashion designer and an illustrator. I, you know, I had a subscription to Vogue when I was in the sixth grade. And uh, so I'm going to art and design. I thought, oh, I'm really going to learn about fashion here. And on my first day at school in the cafeteria, this, this kid walks up to me, a tall African-American kid, total stranger. <laughs> he says to me, hey, do you like comics? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, you know, my name is John Smith. That was his actual name, J.D. Smith. And uh, I really like comics. And he was really persistent. <laughs> and he just kept at me. And, like, and finally he said, you know, I, I, know some, I know some real cartoonists you want to go visit. And I was like, okay. And that's how I met Larry Ivey and Wally Wood. That was the beginning of it. You know, I, I really didn't know much about comics, but at Larry Ivey's, you know, he had complete sets of Reed Crandall Blackhawks and the old Batmans and the whole run of Superman. And and then, you know, I was introduced to Wally Wood. And through Wally Wood, I met Roy Krenkel and Al Williamson. Is this uh, all in one studio? No, 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 no. This is it's just you know, a yeah, yeah. collective. Yeah. Just... Uh, and... And and through Larry Ivy, I met Vaughn Bodie and Roger Brand, and that and those guys introduced me to Trina Robbins and Kim Deitch and Spain Rodriguez, 
And uh, everybody that was in New York that was starting the underground in the 60s. And I got into the comics underground. And uh, I worked on Gothic Blimp Works, which my friend Vaughn was putting together. And uh, there were all these young Turks who couldn't get in the door at Marvel or DC because Gil Kane and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko had it all wrapped up. (laughs) Can you imagine? You know, I mean, Gil Kane was like doing two books a week or something, you know. I mean, these... The, the young guys just couldn't get in the door. They, they, they were, you know, pretty much closed shops. Yeah. You know, they had their, their go-to guys, and that's all, all who they went to. So two of the other guys that worked on Gotham Blimp Works, because they couldn't get in the door, were uh, Bernie Wrightson and Mike Kaluta. Couldn't yeah. get in the door. <laughs> couldn't get that's in the door. <laughs> wild! Kaluta and Wrightson. Well, you know, Kaluta at that time was doing like sort of hippie stuff. Okay. You know, he was doing a strip called Star Child or something. <laughs> you know? And Bernie was still being a, a Graham Ingalls uh, clone, okay. you know, Gaisley from, yeah. from, from EC Comics. So he was doing this very hairy looking horror stuff. And, you know, none of it matched the, quote, house styles, unquote, of both sure. Marvel or DC. But, hey, you know... The undergrounds were wide open, you know. This was mid-60s or later? Late, in the late 60s. Late 60s? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it was about 68 or something that Gothic Blimpworks came out. What, what was that scene like? It, it must have been like full of creativity and, 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 you know, super fun. Or, you know, like how do you go from there into then starting to, you know, do the more mainstreamy stuff? Well, you know... What happened was that another guy that went to high school with, Ralph Reese, um, I introduced him to um, Wally Wood, and he started getting work, you know. And, uh, you know, I was was away in in the service for a couple of years, and when I came home, uh, I needed a job, you know. And Ralph said, uh, hey, let's start a studio. You know, it's like... (laughs) You know, it's like, hey, let's let's put on a play. You know, my dad's got a bar. <laughs> you know, it was like, hey, I got an extra room in my apartment. You know, uh, let's get a couple more drawing tables in there and start a little studio. And you can, you know, and he said, you can pencil faster than I can pencil, and you can, and I can ink faster than you can ink. So, you know, if you pencil and I ink, we'll be faster than both of us. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we started getting, you know, work, uh, horror stories. We we did illustrations for New York Magazine and for Esquire and Rolling Stone and Children's Television Workshop. Mm-hmm. So we were getting some, you know, comic work. But, you know, not really enough to, to pay a steady rent someplace. So Ralph uh, fixed me up with a gig with Wally Wood, being his assistant on... Sally Forth and Cannon, which were strips he did for uh, the Overseas Weekly, okay. which was a paper sold to servicemen, you know, in PXs. Uh, Woody called it the Oversexed Weekly. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was sort of like the, the National Enquirer for, for GIs, yeah. you know. There was, I was reading um, another interview that you did, and you had mentioned in the interview uh, something that Wally Wood said to you that was, if you can letter, you can ink. And 
what does that mean specifically? Well, well, he's, he, he taught me how to letter, first off, because he needed somebody to letter the strips. And he taught me the basic Gaspar Saladino alphabet. Which is? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a little less straight than, than, than other. There's a slight uplift going towards the right, hmm. you know. And it's, it's, it's a real thick, thin thing done with a chisel point. So Woody's logic was like, if I can t- teach you the letter, I can teach you how to ink because it all involves the same motor functions. Of course, I never really got to be that good an inker. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, you're, you're, you get into continuity. That's uh, Neil Adams and Dick Giorgiano's right. studio. Uh, what's that like? What's that environment like? Because it seemed like there were a ton of people working there. Oh, yeah. It was like a really vibrant place. It was a, it was a, a, a hub, you know, because it was on 48th Street. Okay. And it was, you know, within a 10-minute walk of both Marvel and DC. And uh, so, you know, all, all the artists, you know, would if they were going to, like, either company to drop off pages, they'd, they'd come over to Continuity. And, you know, there was free coffee. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's all an artist needs. And, and you could hang, yeah. you know, and meet everybody in the industry, you know, would, would gravitate there, you know, on a, on a single day. You could run into Russ Heath and uh, Sergio Aragones and uh, all these guys, yeah. you know, and uh, Gray Morrow, you know, the, the list goes on and on. And there were all sorts of people who became mainstays in the industry who started out working there as assistants or just renting the $50 table. You know, you could, you could rent a drawing table at Continuity in the early 70s for $50 a month. And and all the coffee you could drink. <laughs> it was a really jumping place. I, I couldn't wait to get there every morning. Sure. Yeah. And from from that perspective, is is there a level of competition or is it a camaraderie? Is there like are you looking at other people's stuff and learning and getting to like that what was, is that? It was like? all of that. It yeah. was like every step of the way in, in, in as far as drawing comics goes, I got help from other other artists. Every step of the way. Because people that draw comics are basically fans, and we uh, we love to see the good stuff, you know, and yeah. we tend to encourage it, you know. Lots of people say Neil is a, is, is a harsh critic, but if he thought that you had anything going for you, he did everything in his power to help you. He got me my first comics job, which was a, a, like an eight-page story for Sinister House of Secrets or something. And, and the only reason I got it was Neil said he'd ink it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's the sample uh, I got that I was able to parlay into getting work from Marvel. I, I started getting some horror stuff from Marvel and some funny stuff. That's how I got my foot in the door at Marvel nice. by by parlaying that that eight page DC story. But whatever works, you know, right. like what, however everybody gets their help from someone, and I think that that's so important. Before we move on to to more of the Marvel stuff, uh, I was reading about the Krusty Bunkers. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So the the inking crew at Continuity. <laughs> right. Can you explain what that is for our listeners who may be unfamiliar? Reading about it made it sound like some of those days could be crazy hectic with multiple people working on a single page oh, at the same yeah, time. Yeah. Well, see, it was it was because 
you know, when there was this big explosion in, in the comics industry, all of a sudden you had all these titles and not enough people to do. <laughs> so, you know, if you had somebody who was a really good penciler, you wanted them to not ink and you just wanted them to pencil as fast as their little fingers could fly. And then you'd get, you know, Joe Blow to ink it, you know. But that meant that sometimes the, the pencilers would be like drastically late. You know, and you'd get like a, a whole job in and you'd realize, oh, my God, it's supposed to ship next week. So the Krusty Bunkers was sort of formed to to be able to finish inking an entire book over the weekend. It was basically Neil doing all the heads <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else doing everything else. And people had specialties. Some people just did, you know, backgrounds, you know, so. One guy was really good at cars, just did cars, you know. Um, and sometimes there would be two or three people, you know, leaning over the same drawing board, you know, inking on different parts of the same page. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as well as passing stuff around. Sure. And we would, we would get the jobs done. You know, we're not even talking about full pencils at this point. You know, we're talking about breakdowns from Gil Kane or John Buscema. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that the crudest breakdown by John Buscema or Gil Kane is a hundred times easier to ink than really tight pencils by somebody who couldn't draw as well. <laughs> <laughs> because really tight, bad drawing, you can't fix it. No. <laughs> All you could do is cover up the bad lines with a nice looking ink line. <laughs> but it was it was great training. You couldn't sit there and just noodle on something, you know. You had to like do it until it was done and yeah. then, you know, go on to the next panel. Yeah. yeah. Uh all right. So you you mentioned that you know working through continuity helped you get into Marvel. Your first published work at Marvel was I an Iron Fist story. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I was reading somewhere else that you actually did another story for Marvel that didn't get published. Well, I did some funny stuff for like Brand Ech and yeah. uh, and uh, Crazy before I, I did the that, – that, that didn't really count. Those were like <laughs> – Crazy's had like three lives. But yeah. the one that you worked on is, was the, is the real, one. like the yeah. long-standing yeah. one. But uh, yeah, Iron Fist though was the first monthly Marvel comic that I worked on. And that's like mid-late 70s? Oh, no. This is early 70s. Is, that's early yeah, 70s. Yeah, yeah. It was before, you know, 74. 74. Like okay. Yeah. You come onto Marvel staff a couple years later. So you're doing a lot. You're still doing a lot of work for Marvel, for DC, for various companies with through continuity and on your own before you come on staff? Well, no, because I went to, um, in 75, I sort of became an actor for a couple of years. So I got cast in... Uh, the Stephen Sondheim musical on Broadway. It's just uh, like comics. Broadway uh, and comics, same exact thing. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I did Pacific Overtures for a year and a half. And along the way, I got into all the unions, and I did an episode of MASH and a, a bunch of soap operas and commercials and things. But I never gave up my $50 desk, <laughs> desk space at, at Continuity. You know, it was like advice of my mother, you know. Don't give up the day job. Smart lady. So, you know, when the, when the show closed, I just went back to, to continuity. And I, 
literally there maybe two months, and then I got offered um, an editorship at DC. Uh, worked on Wonder Woman and Super Friends and uh, a bunch of other titles for uh, about a year. And then they had the big DC implosion. So me and Al Milgram, who were the, the last editors hired, were the first ones fired. So Al immediately went over to Marvel and uh, he called me like two weeks later and he basically said, come on over, the water's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's how I ended up um, editing Crazy. Was, so that was your first project you, you came in on, was Crazy? Yeah. What, man, I the humor lineage of, of books at Marvel is some of my favorite stuff from Matt Brandech to Crazy to... You know, I, I grew up in the reading, started reading comics in the 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was what the, the, the humor, our humor mm-hmm. title of the 90s is really like, that's influenced a lot of my love for this. Was crazy a choice for you? Or was it just like, this is, this is your book, kid. Here you go. Well, that was what they offered me, but it was sort of like a dream job. You know, I'd always been a, a mad fan, you know, and I thought, wow, what, this is like great. You know, I got my own you know, yak rag to play with, you know, and uh, and I was given carte blanche. I could, you know, do whatever I want, you know, and uh, so I just started making stuff up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because we had no budget. You uh-huh. know? I think I think our budget was like $180 a page or something like that, you know, and uh, out of which you had to pay for everything, yeah. you know. Um, so we had to figure out ways to like get free pages, and I borrowed a whole bunch of stuff from Harvey Kurtzman, you know, that, that I had met when I was a teenager, because we used to go and visit Help magazine when they were around. It was Terry Gilliam was the art director, and um, Gloria Steinem was the receptionist. What? Yeah. So we used to like to go over there because we thought Gloria was kind of hot. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and, and Terry was really nice, you know. And you talk about Fometti and Fometti being something that we don't see a lot these no. days. But it was such a, a, a like, it's an important thing globally in comics, of oh, course. Oh, absolutely. But you know. here in the States, I mean, I think well, Crazy was probably one of the places where we would see it the most. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Help always had a Fometti. You know, Fellini started out doing Fometti's. You know, Fometti is actually Italian for little puff of smoke, which is what, you know, they call the balloons uh-huh. over the, uh, you know, uh, the word balloons who were like sort of airbrushed in over the photos. And, um, you know, in, in Italy and Spain, actors and fumettis were stars. Yeah. <laughs> and the directors were stars, but we did them because it was, it was a cheap page. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, like captioned photos and, and, and also re-lettered comics. We would take a classic comic story and do a, what's it called? A what's Up Tiger Lily with mm-hmm. it, you know, that Woody Allen thing where we redubbed the, the Japanese movie. Yeah. So if we, if we got like 10 to 12 free pages an issue, that means we could pay a higher rate for some, for the art pages. Yeah. So that... That was our trick for being able to come out with, with an issue every month. 
good editor's trick right there. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned the environment in different places. What was the environment like at Marvel when you started and then in through into like the 80s and 90s? It was just like a party every day. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't wait to get into the office. You know, I was living on 55th Street and 7th Avenue. Which I could walk to Marvel in like five minutes. Yeah. It was fun. We had a lot of fun. There was no occasion too minor to have a party in the bullpen, you know. And uh, and the de- decorations were just nuts. You know, I took lots of photos of these things. Oh, and um, it was it was like, you know, being in, in part of a, a wacky extended family. There was a small town family feel. But that extend you know, it extended over to the D.C. people because even though the companies were distinct, the personnel were interchangeable, you know. <laughs> People move back and forth. People move back and forth yeah. all the time. But I was aware of the contrast immediately because I had been an editor at DC, and then I went over to become an editor at Marvel. And I remember the first day at DC, I, I went to tack something up on the wall, and people came in and said, you can't do that? And I went, I, I can't stick a picture of my wall? They said, no, 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 no. If you want to put something on your wall in your editorial office, you have to put it into this special envelope. Oh, my gosh. And uh, submit it to this committee. And the committee decides whether or not you can have that on your wall. You know, I, I went from that, you know, to coming over to, to Marvel where it's like <laughs> <laughs> anything goes. You know, people had everything hanging on the walls. And I, for one, I went to the art supply store and I bought like large sheets of red, red photographic gel where you have these, these types of lights. And I put the gel over there so like my entire room was red. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great. It sounds fun. Yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a really, an environment conducive to people being into it and creating neat stuff. Yeah. You know? And, um, you know, there was no security. People just walked in and, you know, freelancers could come in and hang out all day, you know, just go from one office to the other. And everybody had couches and, you know. Well, for instance, I had, like Steve Ditko used to come and and sit in my office because he felt, uh, well, I had known him since the 60s because I, I met him through Wally Wood. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he knew me. I wasn't a stranger. <laughs> and uh, and he knew that in my office he wouldn't be bothered by, you know, the, the fanboys, you know, things like that. That's pretty uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, you edited a ton of different titles. What's a, what's editing like for a book, say, Crazy, a humor magazine, versus Conan, which is sword and sorcery, versus... Mm-hmm. Superhero titles like a Machine Man or whatever. Oh, is there a difference? It's all very different. At Crazy, I just I pretty much had to come up with everything. I would like create characters or something and, and just give them to people because I you know I wasn't getting paid for character creation, yeah. but I needed material. So I, this is what I had to do. And when I took over the Conan books, you know I I figured an editor's job is is. 99% just to have good taste, that my job is to hire the right people to do the job and let them do it. <laughs> In all the time that I was an editor, I, I never rewrote a single line of anything. If I thought something needed fixing, I would get the writer to, to do it. Sure. If I thought the artwork needed 
uh, correcting. I didn't send it to the bullpen. I tried to get the artist to do it himself. Mm. You know, I wanted the material to have an integrity, and um, I wanted the people that worked for me to feel that um, what they were doing meant something and wasn't just a commodity. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That people at our end cared about what it was. You know. Yeah. Uh, speaking of writing, you know, of course, you've you've written hundreds of comics for us, and I, I was reading that you tend to your your planning for your stories is done very close to the bone. You less long term thinking about arcs or thinking about bigger structure for multiple issues, and more from like page to page. Why is that? Is it just what works for you? Yeah, because uh, I I don't know what's on page three until I get to page two. <laughs> It's it's my way of um, circumventing the uh, you know the butler did it. You know? <laughs> uh, if you know what the ending is, your tendency is to manipulate your characters to get them to that ending. So if if you're halfway through and all of a sudden you realize oh something's not working, you're sort of stuck because you've pushed these characters on this chessboard around to. To a specific location, you can't undo it. Yeah. That's why I concentrated mostly on the characters. I thought I have to nail the characters and make them totally consistent. And that way, they sort of write it themselves. You know, you get to like situation B, and then you realize, oh, what you had planned for them to get to situation to, to point C violates this character's core core character so you can't do that mm. so whatever i came up with is 99% of the times it's better you know yeah. oh well it's fresh right <laughs> that's great and i visualize the story in my head first as a series of images and when i sit down at the word processor i'm just describing those images why a lot of artists say they like my plots because I'm not giving them six pages of people sitting in a round in a room talking and explaining this stuff. You know, if my characters are explaining something, they're punching each other in the face <laughs> while they're explaining it. <laughs> you know? And it's all because that's what I li I like to see. I like to see the characters, you know, jumping around and not just jumping around, but emoting. Acting, having subtext, you know, this is something I learned when I was acting because everything else is just choreography. You know, you're just moving moving the guys around and that's not all that interesting. No. I, you know, I, I find it fascinating because I, I, you know, being here at Marvel, I see how we have different licenses and we work with different groups. And, you know, you mentioned G.I. Joe and your process seems like if I was a Hasbro guy, I'd be like, pulling my hair out because you got a guy who's telling amazing stories, but I don't know what you're doing for next issue. I don't know where you're taking these characters. Uh, what was that relationship like with, with Hasbro and working on G.I. Joe? Um, after a while, they, they, they realized that there wasn't anything they could do about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's the thing is that, you know, if you've got, if you start off with 10 characters, you know, it was 10 plus because they had all these you know, unnamed characters yeah. too. And I'm thinking, 
Boy, that's more more than there are Avengers, you know. And everybody is always complaining about the group books. Oh, there's so many of these characters, and I got to memorize all these costumes. <laughs> you know, and keeping track of the characters is really is really difficult. So that's why I, I sat down and I wrote all these dossiers, these file cards, so I could nail the characters down because I knew that if they went to the second year, there'd be ten more characters, yeah. you know, and I'd have twenty to to deal with. And a Hasbro exec was at, at my office, and he saw these things on my on my desk, and he said, "Oh, we should put these on the back of the package." And that's how the the file cords began. That's wild. Yeah, they didn't exist before then, yeah. and now they're standard. Yeah, and, and, I, like I've seen people's like um, weddings have file cards right. for like their whole <laughs> like, the wedding party and everything. I was like, and for me, I, as a GI Joe fan, I was like, those were. We would read over and over and over and learn everything about the the distilled core of those characters because right. it was just so it was everything we wanted. But having you know a file card like that, you know, made it a lot easier for them to do the animate animated series because you know it was all the information is right, right there, there. You know, yeah. I really appreciate the work you've done for Marvel and, and thank you for coming here. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, enjoyed it. Hope I didn't bend your ear too much. All right, once again, big thanks to Larry Hama for coming in here. Big thanks to Marika Hashimoto on the team for setting it all up, for bringing Larry in. Uh, And she also has a cool piece with Larry, which you can check out on Marvel.com on Veterans Day. But we have our question of the week for all of you friends at home. Disney Plus is launching next week, so we want to know what are you most excited to see on Disney Plus when it kicks off? Be sure to hashtag This Week in Marvel, or you can email us your questions, comments, and whatever at twimpodcast at marvel.com or send us a message on our Facebook page, which we also check, which is facebook.com slash this week in Marvel. So what's the first Marvel thing you're going to watch? Um, I'm going to watch the old Spider-Man animated stuff that is going to be on at launch. Get at me, world. I'm going to be eating my popcorn and just watching that unfold. I think they're going to have the Spider-Woman. 19- they are. They're, it's like the 1979. Yeah, which is wild. I've never seen that, so I may want to watch that, but... I'm going to watch me some Wolverine and the X-Men, which is one of my favorite animated series. Uh, it's real cool. It's great. And I'm, I'm glad more people will hopefully get to see it. Yeah. You know what else is going to be available, which is super cute, is a bunch of the shorts that we've done are going to be on there. And they're so cute. And they're like easy and fun to watch. And I feel like you might have just missed them if you weren't looking for them. So go check out the shorts, too, because those are going to be really cool. Heck yeah. Uh, community section mostly this week is going to be from some of you guys. Uh, you're actually going to hear your voices on the show uh, because we asked you guys to help celebrate our eighth anniversary with us and send in your own Marvel origin stories. Here are some that we loved and we were able to include in the show. So enjoy them right now. Hi, I'm Amy. I come from China. The first time I knew the Marvel Universe, I watched the first Iron Man movie. I have watched a lot of Marvel movies until now, and the Marvel Universe has brought me a lot of happiness. Hi, this is Karis Pollard from London, a genuine British kitty in the city. I don't remember exactly when I fell in love with the Marvel Universe, but it was through the films, and it was probably around the time of Avengers Assemble. The reason I was so drawn to it, I think, was because there were so many characters with such rich depth and complexity who were really interesting but still pretty good at heart. And the more I've got into the universe, the more 
characters I've realised who fit that mould and the more I've fallen in love. So, thank you, Marvel. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm 22 from China. My first introduction to Marvel was Iron Man back when I was 11 in primary school. Oh my god, I can still remember how excited I got when I stepped out the cinema that day that completely changed my life. Iron Man is of course my favorite hero and he'll always live in our hearts. My name is Shu Kun and I'm from China. I bought my first comic book in 2016. It's a, a trade paperback of Deadpool Too Soon. And I just kept on reading and reading and reading. And because I move a lot, friends and family can't be with me 24-7, but Marvel can. Hey, this is uh, Simon Williams from Dallas, Texas. I was born in the mid-80s, so I remember seeing a little bit of Spider-Man and his amazing friend. And then when I was little, I remember once my uncle, he bought me a... It was a what-if comic. What if Spider-Man had kept the powers of Captain Universe? So just seeing uh, those kind of things, these fantastic powers and adventures, that just appealed to me like it appealed to every kid. I still get that kind of excitement when I read the comics or see the movies. So uh, congratulations to This Week in Marvel. And here's to several other adventures and many more years. Oh, man, those were awesome. I just really want to thank every single person who took time to send us a little voice message. You guys are our heart. The fans are everything. And thank you for sharing our love of Marvel with us every week. I know it means a lot to us. It does. It's really great. Uh, what's also really great is that this episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Percy Verlin and Zachary Goldberg. Also, our audio development manager is Brad Barton, who is alive, a well, and quite healthy. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. I, I saw her once today. She's doing great. And we had additional production help from Jamie Frevely and Emily Kimura. Special thanks to Fancy Dan for always seeing the fanciest in all of us. He's so fancy. Oh, man. His, like, later day redesign gave him sleeve tattoos and, like, that vest. And he, like, rolls up his sleeves and he's just like, hey. He's got the haircut. Fancy. He's a real dapper Dan. And that's going to be it for us this week. Let's let's go. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs> <laughs>